0: The LEAP Foundation proudly presents the Meet the Matter podcast with New York Times best-selling author, motivational speaker, and celebrity dentist, Dr. Bill Dorfman. Hey, Dr. Bill here. I'm super-duper-duper excited to introduce you to our next guest. You know, one of the things I love about LEAP is this isn't just you know me and Charlie and James. Our community has embraced LEAP wholeheartedly for so many years. I mean, I could never afford to get Mark Wahlberg, Anthony Hopkins, Paula Abdul, Michael Strahan, Usher, Eva Longoria, Kelly Osborne, on and on and on and on. These people are as committed to our youth as I am. And it it just warms my heart. When I asked friends of mine to come and speak to you, the next man, not only, you know, is he coming to speak to us virtually, he actually went to a seminar and helped me raise over a hundred thousand dollars to sponsor students to come to LEAP that couldn't afford to come. Um, I have known Jason for over 20 years. Um, I know his wife. I know his kids. I know his parents. I know her parents. And he's just a beautiful, beautiful man and has had such an amazing, successful career. He's iconic. So let me introduce you to my friend, Jason Alexander. He's an American actor, comedian, singer, and director. He's best known as his role... George Costanza in the TV hit series, Seinfeld, for which he was nominated for seven consecutive primetime Emmy Awards, four Golden Globe Awards, other well-known roles, Pretty Woman. He played Hugo in the Disney animated feature, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the title character in the animated series, Duckman. Jason has had an active career on stage, appearing in several Broadway musicals, where he won a Tony Award as the Best Leading Actor in a Musical, and a Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater. It is my pleasure to introduce you to my friend, Jason Alexander. Hey, Jason! So, Jason, let's start at the beginning. I mean, you grew up in New Jersey or New York? New Jersey. New Jersey. When did you first start acting?
1: Um, it, it depends what you call acting. I, I, I got very interested in magic as, as a kid, li- really a little kid, like a six-year-old, and I would perform a little bit of magic, But and I guess that's performing, and I guess that's a kind of acting, but for the real acting that you're talking about, I, I really first got onto a stage when I was 12 years old, because I moved from Maplewood, New Jersey to Livingston, New Jersey, right after I finished elementary school. And I knew not a soul in, in the new town. And I moved there in the summer and I was at a community pool and a, a, a teenage girl came up to me from out of the blue and asked me if I was able to sing. And uh, I was such a loner and she was such a lovely human being, a very attractive young lady. Uh, I immediately said, y- yes, y- yes, I sing. Having you know, sung in the shower. And I got dragged into a, uh, a teen theater production of The Sound of Music. And that was the first time I really got on stage, started hanging out with theater kids, started realizing that I had both an affection for and I guess uh, uh, an ability in live performance. And it was such a big change to my life that literally two years later, uh, I was started working professionally. So that, that two years was an interesting sort of set of, uh, of, of happy accidents. But two years later, when I was 14, is when I joined the union and started working truly as a professional actor.
0: But you really started in, in, in musical theater, right? I mean, that was way yeah. before. In fact, you know what I, I found out recently? Bruce Eckstadt, your old voice coach, was my voice coach. Now, I, of course, didn't get as far as you got, but we had the same voice coach. When did you make that transition from musical theater into TV and film and all?
1: Well, the crazy thing is that, so I, so I said I started working professionally when I was 14. The professional work I was getting was not in the theater. It was in television. I started working... Um, I started getting commercials and working uh, television commercials at that time. And I was doing children's theater in New Jersey, and a father in the audience one day was a television producer and thought, oh, this could be... We were doing little original musicals for, for young children. And this gentleman thought that we could make an interesting television series out of them. So he ponied up the money and he produced that television pilot, which didn't really run, but it did air in New York on a Sunday morning. And that's how I got a manager. And then my manager started putting me up for television. So it wasn't until I got out of college, really, that my professional career in the theater began. It had started in television.
0: Along the way, were you taking classes or were you just like learning by actually doing it or a little of both?
1: uh very much a little of both i never i started taking voice class not with bruce sextet because i didn't know him yet but i started taking voice and dance the minute i realized at age 12 that i was smitten with musical theater i found local teachers and started studying and i didn't take an acting class until i got to boston university i was a theater major at boston university and i didn't get to finish i i did three years and before I could go back for my final year, the world of work presented itself and I grabbed those opportunities. So I kept looking for teachers while I was working professionally and had many, many acting teachers, many voice, uh, voice and dance teachers. So I, I really never stopped. I'm 60 now. I didn't stop studying well, even now I still take voice lessons. So, I mean, I'm never, I'm never not studying, but I haven't studied with an acting teacher since I was probably about 40, but I, I, I stayed in the student game for a long time.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, you are probably in the most competitive profession in the world or one of them. And, And, you know, to succeed, to the level that you have is really an anomaly. I always love to ask actors of your stature, you know, what was the the big break? I mean, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of things that need to happen to get to where you got, but I always feel like there was always one like this was the break or this was the moment. Like I knew I was going to be an actor, you know, like it was the day I opened up my, my letter of acceptance to dental school that I knew for sure I was going to be a dentist. I didn't know where I didn't know anything else, but I knew what was that moment for you when you knew, you know what, I can do this and like really make a living doing this. You know, Bill, for,
1: for my case, which is so uh, unusual for the path that most artists go, I, I began to think I could make a living even before I had to make a living because my early success was coming as a teenager and I was making money. I was able to basically put myself through college on my own earnings, which is extraordinary. But my fantasy as a kid had nothing to do with film or television. It was all about getting to the Broadway stage. And I imagined, even in my fantasies, that it would take a a number of years to get there. I thought the route would be summer stock or repertory theaters or touring shows, and that somehow, someday, if I was lucky, by 35, 40, I would manage to flop my way to Broadway. So I would have to say the big break came when I was 20 years old, and there was a Broadway musical casting that's become sort of famous at this point, called Merrily We Roll Along. And it was a Stephen Sondheim musical being directed by Hal Prince, who were and probably still are the two biggest gods of the musical theater of the 20th century. They cast me in that show. And so at age 20, I had attained a dream that I didn't think would come to me until much later in life. And even though the show itself was not in that initial production a success by any stretch of the imagination, it gave me the experience and the confidence and the belief that there could in fact be more and that I had started a journey I could now somewhat rely on and build on. So that was probably the the first one
0: so i know the story of seinfeld because i've heard you tell it before and it's really fascinating so for our students out there by the way jason we have a thousand students watching you right now this is an all-time leap record a thousand students so um i know the story but i would love to hear you kind of recount the story of seinfeld because you know success is a funny thing when people see a successful person they just think it happened, you know? Like kids come up to me at Leap all the time and say, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill, like what's the secret of success? It, it's like they want to take a pill and just become, like it's they don't realize it's hard work. Like you gotta work your buns off. So share with us the whole Seinfeld thing because a lot of these guys will never be in entertainment. They don't really know like the intricacies and the you know, backstage stuff. But if you could take us through it, I think it's such a fascinating story.
1: Well, first of all, Seinfeld happened in, uh, I, I believe, 1989, 1990 was when we did the pilot of, of Seinfeld. Now, by that time, I was living a very happy life. I was working on Broadway constantly. I had just won the Tony Award um, for, uh, for Best Musical Actor, and I was, I was doing exactly what I thought I'd be doing my whole life. And suddenly, from out of the blue, I get a call to go down to a casting office to audition for this thing called the Seinfeld Chronicles. I knew who Jerry Seinfeld was, I had seen him perform. I knew who Larry David was, I had seen him perform, but I did not know them personally. The only thing they sent, because they did not come for these auditions, the actors were just being put on tape. So they sent four pages of the pilot script. It had no context, I didn't know what the story was. I, all it was was the dialogue from four pages and having no clue what they were looking for. When I read it, it struck me that it felt like and sounded like the Woody Allen films of the time. And I thought, oh, this George character seems like a kind of a Woody Allen guy. So I just decided I would do Woody Allen. I didn't wear glasses at the time. I went out and got glasses that became a a George staple. And not only did I do a very thick New York accent, but for the audition, I, I literally was doing Woody Allen. I you know was trying to, to do his voice. And it was a brave, if foolish audition, and it went off, and I thought I would never hear anything more about it, because typically New York actors did not get Los Angeles-based jobs that way. And I got a call a few days later from Larry David saying that they love the tape. They want to bring me out to California. To- to meet with everybody and audition for the network. And when I got there, I met everybody. Larry just said, we love everything you did. Maybe not quite so much Woody Allen, maybe just very New York. So Woody Allen became what is now known as George. And, uh, and we, I, I read for the network. We did the pilot. Um, I, I never thought the pilot would go anywhere, not because I didn't think it was funny. It just was not what was on television at the time. And we did Struggle. Uh, The the pilot was picked up. We got a very small order of four episodes. They didn't test very well, but had a very small audience. And they kept renewing us reluctantly for the first almost two and a half seasons where we had a small dedicated audience, but nothing that would make for a hit show. And then for some reasons that I'm sure I don't know, they put us on in our third season, halfway through, they put us on after Cheers, which at the time was the biggest television comedy going. And we had that audience, we had their audience come take a look at us. And in very short time, in that time slot, the show became a hit. But it was not, not something that I thought would become what it became when I auditioned for it. It was not something that any of us thought it would become when we were doing the first two and a half years of it. So. For that kind of success, you it's hard to anticipate it. And if, if we had done everything people told us to do to make it a success, it would have died. The fact that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David stuck to their guns and they continued to make the show that they believed in and that they wanted to make, regardless of what the, you know the, the supposed audience response was, they kept to their vision, They kept consistent and with a little bit of support from the network, eventually that audience came and it broke through and it became what it is
0: today. You know, there are times in life that become magical and magical is when one plus one equals three. And that's what you guys had. You had one plus one equaling three. And there was a combination of your characters and all of the genius that went behind that show that really made it come alive and become magical. And the crazy thing is, you were not known as a comedian. You know, this was not really in your wheelhouse of, of your body of work. What did you do to really? like transition from musical theater and commercials and the stuff you were doing to to, now you're known literally worldwide as a comedian.
1: Well, yes and no to all of that. So it's hard to do musicals and musical theater without being at least comedy adjacent because most of them are called musical comedies. So if you don't have a sense of humor, you're not going to succeed very much in musical theater. I had also by that point worked for Neil Simon who was the biggest comedy playwright of the 20th century. Uh, So I knew where comedy was. I just didn't think of myself as a comedian. I didn't think of myself as creating funny characters like like a sketch comic actor on Saturday Night Live would have to do. George was a very broad character for me and uh, very much outside of who I am. So the learning experience came from, when I was in college, this, this was a big turning point for me in comedy. I became an actor thinking I would do musicals, and, but that I would do the great dramatic musicals. I would be Don Quixote and Man of La Mancha, and I would be Sweeney Todd and Sweeney Todd. And, you know. um, and I went to college, and when I was in college, I was uh, exactly the height I am now, which is five, five feet, five inches tall. I, I was probably about 20 pounds overweight in college, and I already had the good beginnings of a bald spot, and I thought I was going to be the greatest dramatic actor in the world, and I had a professor there who, in my sophomore year, having watched what I was gravitating to in in classes, pulled me into his office, and, and he said these very famous words to me. He said, I know that your heart and soul is Hamlet, and you would be a profound Hamlet, but you will never play Hamlet so you better get good at Falstaff. And what he was basically saying is, if I wanted to have a commercially successful career, given what I bring to the table as an image, I had to learn to embrace comedy. And I took him very seriously, as I took most things very seriously. And I began, I created my own syllabus about comedy. I began watching uh, comedic performances that, that I really enjoyed. Uh, Of all kinds, physical comedy, clowning, um, Marx Brothers, wit, all kinds of comedy and comedy albums and watching comedians and trying to figure out what was making it funny. What were the secrets of comedy? And to some degree, I I was able to make a notebook about a whole bunch of observations, general observations about what made things funny. And I would incorporate little bits and little ideas from performers that I saw and they would kind of rumble around inside of me. and So I always tell people that my understanding of comedy, how we say we stand on the shoulders of giants, I literally do. I have their performances and their DNA and their ideas about funny sort of rumbling around inside of me and it got into my DNA and I can cobble together my own sort of newish ideas and create comedy Um, because of what I've learned from all those wonderful teachers.
0: And, you know, one of the core principles of LEAP, and we say it again and again and again and again, copy genius. Don't reinvent mediocrity. When you guys, and I'm looking at all my students here, when you guys go out into the world and you want to, you know, be successful in life, look at what other successful people are doing and then do it better you know? And the other thing that I love about you, Jason, too, is, you know, people are going to tell you your whole life, you can't do this, you can't do that. You don't listen to them. You can't. Okay. Jason can't play in the NBA. Neither can I. This is true. So you have to have enough common sense to know what stuff to listen to and what not to listen to. But Jason was in one of my favorite movies, Pretty Woman. And he is not what they were looking to cast in that. But he got that role. And I, that's another one of my favorite Jason stories. And I would love you to share that with them because when the, when the directors and the producers of that show had an image in their mind of what that character was, it wasn't Jason Alexander. You know, They actually had another guy picked, but they fell in love with him and he made that an iconic part for himself as well. So if you could share that story, I would love it, Jason.
1: Sure. Um, so the role that I played and auditioned for was sort of the villain of that movie, uh, a guy named Stucky. And um, here's the thing. If you if you know the movie Pretty Woman, what you may not know is that the script that we were working from and the movie that you've seen are qualitatively very different. The script was a much darker uh, affair. Um, the depiction of life as a, as a street a prostitute was a lot more real. Uh, they did not end up together at the end. It, is, it was a little more of a dramedy than a, than a romantic comedy. And it changed under the auspices of the director, Gary Marshall. But when I auditioned, it was still very much a dramedy. And they wanted the actor that played Stucky to be a little rough around the edges. I was 29, which was young, for the level of professionalism that is generally attained by a lawyer at that age. Uh, And Gary Marshall, who I read for the director, thought I was too small, too baby-faced, too young, too sweet. But the casting director, a woman named Diane Crittenden, thought that I was a really interesting idea for this part, and, and saw something in me that said he'd be good in this. Gary Marshall was not going to give it to me. There was, as Bill said, there was another actor Gary wanted to give it to, and the production company just couldn't make a deal with that actor that he would accept. And as they were still trying to negotiate, the movie had started filming, and now they got to put somebody in that role. The director still adamantly did not want to use me. So the casting director went to the star, Richard Gere, and said, I'd like you to do me a favor. There's an actor that I think would be great for this but we got to show it to Gary. Uh, And the big concern was that because of the fight scene where Richard's character beats me up, they thought that the difference in our sizes would be so profound that it would look, (laughs) it would look like Richard Gere was beating up a dwarf. And the film was being produced by Disney and they're very protective about their dwarfs. So they were nervous about that image. So Richard invited me to his office And he put books down on the floor, big, thick books. And I stood on those books. And the casting director filmed us doing one of the scenes. And then Richard Gere became my advocate. He went into the office to Gary Marshall and put the tape on his desk and went, this is the guy. And that's kind of how I got that film. My first day on that set, I was working for a director who did not yet want me to be there. And I I, I had to be able to deal with that. And as I said, the director was creating a very different kind of film than what was on the, what was on the page. So as he explained to me and sort of threw down the challenge of what he wanted that day, I had to not only rise to that challenge, I had to surpass his expectations. And once I did, he became my biggest fan, and Gary Marshall and I spent years together as, as friends and colleagues. But... Um, It is true uh, that you can change somebody's mind, but that is a perfect uh, example of what Bill was talking about. There was a situation where success came because did I have the ability and the experience to be able to do that job? Yes. Could I create something unique and build it on me? Yes. And so that's, that's the talent part. But you also need opportunity. And that was an unusual opportunity. And the other thing that most often plays into success is you need an advocate. You need someone who believes in you and supports you. And in that case, I had a casting director and a, and a prominent actor, both of whom became my allies and backed me and said to the, to the powers that be, this is the guy. So talent, opportunity and advocacy all came together and I got that film and then that film really did talking about big breaks that was a big break that really changed the course of my career
0: forever i want to ask you something really personal what would you say was your biggest challenge to overcome I and mean, we all have them you know but you know if if you really had to sit down and say this is the one thing that really could have held me back and, 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 and I had to overcome it. I'd like to know what it was and how you overcame it. You know, I, I've been doing a lot in, in this COVID time. I've been doing a lot of mentoring with my LEAP students and I, I am literally blown away at the level of anxiety that young people experience today. I didn't even know the word anxiety growing up. I mean, like it wasn't even a thing to have anxiety, but there is so much anxiety out there. And this is a, a real obstacle for a lot of young people to overcome. And, and I'm sure that there was something in your life, Jason, that was really an obstacle that you had to, you know, get over. And I'd like to know what it was and how you got over it.
1: Well, again, my, my particular journey is really qualitatively different from some other people. So do we all have obstacles? Yeah. Mine as a, as a young person, the, the challenges I was going to have to face came later in life because I stumbled into such early success. And I was able to ride the wave of that success for a very long time. But where I had to sort of face my demons Uh, and recalibrate and rethink and get it together was actually very much at my midlife point. It was after Seinfeld ended, and I was trying to build and expand the career that I had. So I started becoming a producer, and I was producing um, things for television, for theater, for film. I became a director. I became all these other things to sort of build that. However, um, I'll I'll take my my three television series that I've done since Seinfeld. Now, if I tell people I've done three television series where I was the creator, executive producer, and star since Seinfeld, they go, really? And that's because you've probably never heard of them. All three of them, by by every, any standard barometer, failed. They did not find and keep an audience. They did not stay on the air. And I had a string of... Of disappointments and failures like that over a five to ten year period following Seinfeld, and it was incredibly. Um, it shook me because I kept thinking, I, "I have all this experience, I have all this knowledge, I think I know what I'm doing." Um, why is the stuff I'm doing not working? Not working? Not working? Is is it me? Is it the stuff? Is the so doubt, anxiety. Um, failure, that that word, you are a failure. But then I started, A, I went into therapy and I started to really examine my life and get some perspective on my life and who I am and and saw mistakes I had made and saw the pattern of them and went, oh, I can work on that and start to change my attitude and my approach and my behaviors. Um, And then I also was able to look at that period of failure and realize, and hopefully this is something that will be of use to all of you. Success and failure has to become a very personal measuring stick. Because as I look back on those three failed series that I did, they are three of the most successful things I've ever done in my life. They stretched me as a human being. They stretched me as an artist. I actually stand by, a lot of what we accomplished on those shows. I learned, I grew, I made tremendous relationships. There is the only barometer in which they failed was in finding an audience. But for me personally, they were three of the most successful things I've ever done in my life. And if you look at your personal success and your personal failure by, did it sell? Did it get you the money you wanted? Did it get you um, the promotion you wanted? Did it put you somewhere where you thought it would land you? And you think, well, it didn't do that, so therefore it's a failure. Um, Then you will probably miss everything that it offered you outside of that one specific thing. So my, my biggest hurdles and anxieties were was I going to be a guy who failed at midlife, who had a great sort of meteoric journey for a while and then lost it, that I couldn't sustain it? And would I spend the latter half of my life feeling like the first part was a fluke? And uh, it, it is not. In fact, had, I succeed, had any of those things succeeded, I would not have probably had half of the experiences that have made me the person I am and that I kind of like being today if any of those had succeeded because they would have eaten my life. I would have not have had the time with my family. I would have not have taken the the trips that I took. I would not have done the studying that I've done. I would not have directed and written and produced and acted in things that I wouldn't have been able to do because I was doing those shows. So their failures were actually in the long run a gift. But boy, it sure didn't feel like that at the time. So uh, hopefully that that's a, a decent answer to what you're asking about, Bill.
0: Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, one of the things I love telling our students is it's all perception, right? I never fail. And I'm not saying it with arrogance. I'm saying it because if I do something and it doesn't come out exactly the way I want it to come out, I don't consider that failure, just like you didn't. That's practice. And then you do it again, and it's more practice. And again and again and again and again, if you have to, because you really only fail when you quit. So all of those attempts that you did, yeah, you gleaned something out of them, but you didn't fail. That was practice, and there's going to be a really big one that's going to be super-duper-duper successful, and all of that practice that you had is what you needed to get to that point. So, you know, if you students never want to fail in life, don't, because you really only fail when you give up. And if you don't give up, if you have the tenacity to continue and look at those attempts as really practice, or like Jason did, you know, he, gave, look at, not only is he an incredibly successful man, he's a beautiful dad. He's got beautiful kids. He's got a great wife. I mean, he has a great life. A lot of actors, a lot of people in his profession, their life is it, a you know what show. It's not good you know? And, you know, that's the last thing I want to ask you, Jason. How do you, like, stay normal? I mean, you really are. You are a normal, nice guy. And a lot of people with your stature really aren't. How do you stay grounded? I know it's your wife. (laughs) 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 I know her very well. But, But really, what is it that keeps you grounded, that keeps you the dad that keeps you the son that keeps, how do you stay grounded? I, I think the best
1: answer for me is I, I realized early on why I became an actor and then I changed the reason. Um, I became an actor because frankly, it was one of the few things I thought I was good at. And the, the reason I thought I was good at it was that when I would do it, I would earn, as a friend of mine says, the admiration of strangers. Uh, groups of people would laugh in my in, while held in my hands or weep or be inspired or moved. And at the end, they would stand up and applaud and give me all that um, momentary love. And... I loved the feeling of that. So I became an actor initially because it fed me. It made me feel powerful and special and unique and any other adjective you want to put in there. A lot of performers never lose that reaction to uh, success. And if that is what sustains you, like anything that becomes part of the normal part of your life, it, 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 it sparkle wears off and you need more and more and more of it on a bigger level in order to feel it again. And so successful actors can tend to live kind of unreal lives. They have to surround themselves with the things that feed them and give them that sense of, of success and power and uniqueness. For me personally, I I began to realize as I was becoming successful that I no longer craved that feeling of being um, admired or applauded by the audience. What I really wanted was to connect with the community I was in. What I realized was that what made me become an actor when I was a kid was that I was a lonely kid and a frightened kid and I didn't have a community. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a sports guy, and I wasn't, a, I wasn't on teams, and I wasn't in clubs. And, and I walked into a rehearsal of a show, and that group of people instantaneously became my community. As I got older, I realized that what I was working for was to empower that sense of community. So in other words, my purpose for doing what I do became in the service of the people around me to have a shared experience with them to make their experience as good as it could be through my own contribution. When that becomes, when when your life becomes and your success becomes part of doing a service for others, for being part of a community, it's a little hard to get ungrounded because you are tied to those people and to your community. I think that has, been, that has been the source of the stability and the happiness in my life. My community is my family. They come first. I, I did not go back to Broadway and do eight shows a week until my children were fully grown because I knew I would not see them. I'd be gone every night, I'd be gone every weekend, I'd be gone every holiday. They'd come home from school, daddy would go out the door if I was doing theater eight times a week, so I stayed in Los Angeles. And I waited for the TV opportunities or the film opportunities, even though I was primarily a stage actor. I have been with my wife for almost 40 years. Have all of them been easy? No. In any relationship, you hit times that are hard. um, Circumstances of your life change. Your partners, sometimes the partnership gets a little shaky. But if you give it value, you figure it out, you work through it, and you get something even better at the other end. Same thing with career, same thing with, you know, who am I if I'm not an actor, director, producer, writer? I have to be that person too. I have to be somebody's greatest friend. I have to be somebody's greatest neighbor. I have to be an advocate for, the, for my city, my community, my neighborhood, my country, my world. Um, there's a lot of work that I put a lot of time and energy and interest in that is not serving me, but serving a lot of other people around me. Ultimately, I, I get a personal reward from all of that because uh, it, it does feed me. It feeds me in the same way that people standing up and going yay used to feed me. But if the yay never came, the act of being of service, has its own values and its own rewards for me and i and i i think bill that that more than anything else to the extent that anyone would accuse me of being grounded uh, uh, is probably the the major reason
0: well jason i I thank you from the bottom of my heart the students thank you this has been incredible Um, you are so generous and so sweet to do this and i can tell all of you truthfully he is a great brusher and flosser um, as is his whole family Um, he comes from a beautiful family i love your wife dana your boys are amazing and very hairy we don't know how that oh your wife his wife has literally the thickest she has hair for four people she is a beautiful beautiful woman and an amazing artist and i have just so enjoyed being your friend for all these years and i can't thank you enough for, for being with us today and for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your experience and everything that's Jason with my students. So thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, Bill. Thanks. And thanks everybody.
0: To learn more about the leap foundation, go to LeapFoundation.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the leap foundation on Instagram at leap foundation and on Twitter at leap Los Angeles. Listen to the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever
1: you listen to your favorite podcasts.